Good morning. Today's scripture I learned as a child growing up in church. And through the years, through the journey of life, through the trials and the victories, it went from being words in my head to truth that was really written on my heart. Isaiah 40, 31. Los que esperan en Jehová, nuevas fuerzas tendrán, volarán con poder como águilas, correrán sin fatigarse, andarán sin desmayar. Oh Señor, enséñame en ti a esperar. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Janiel. I, I don't think I'm going to attempt to sing my sermon in Spanish today, but that was very powerful. <laughs> Yet next time, you could teach me. Um, in the year 2000, I had um, what I would consider an emotional breakdown. Not a nervous breakdown, but an emotional breakdown. And I want to tell you a little bit about what was happening in my life during that time. I was attending seminary at Alliance Theological, and I would go to class during the day from 9 o'clock until 3 o'clock, and at night, I would work for UPS, uh, loading trucks from 12 midnight until 8 a.m. And so after class, I would hurry home, and I would study for about three to four hours, sleep for three hours, get up, and my roommate Paul and I would hop in the car and we would drive back to UPS, start the day over. As soon as we were done with our shift, I would go home as quickly as possible, take a shower, and I'd have just enough time to get back to class the following morning. I did that for nine months. Three hours of sleep a night for nine months. And one day, on my way to UPS, I remember I was in the car with Paul, and we were approaching the exit that we needed to take in order to, to get to the UPS plant, and I burst into tears. I literally, literally started sobbing, and I said, Paul, don't take the exit. Don't take the exit. I cannot do another shift. I can't do another shift. And, and Paul was like trying to calm me down and trying to, to get me to just, you know, relax for a moment. But I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I had lost all sense of hope. I was sleep deprived. My, my batteries were so low and I was so drained and so discouraged and I just couldn't keep it up. I, I wanted to do it because I didn't want to accumulate any additional debt, any student loans. I had already accumulated some and I was trying not to add to that. But I should have known that I couldn't do the things that God was calling me to on three hours of sleep per night. My emotional and my spiritual 
batteries were drained. At class, I remember I would stand in the back because I knew if I sat down in one of the seats, I'd fall asleep. So I would stand in the back and I would hold a cup of coffee and I would listen to the lecture standing. It was an awful way to live. And I'm glad that season is through. But I want to tell you that our culture, our culture celebrates that kind of stuff. Our culture celebrates accomplishing things, pushing, driving hard, getting things done, right? And that's, uh, that will tend to lead us to taking more stock in getting things done than taking care of our soul and our emotional well-being. And we know it's not sustainable, right, when we're in that place. We know it's not sustainable, but we keep pushing. Have any of you been in a season like that? Are you in a season like that? If you are, raise your hand. I know some of you are because I talk with some of you. And you know that it's not sustainable. And you've known it for some time. But you keep pushing. And you keep telling yourself, it's just for a season. It's just for a season. Arianna Huffington, the founder of the Huffington Post, has a new platform called Thrive. Maybe some of you have seen it. Um, She has developed this platform to help people that are stressed out. People that have been pushing hard at at an unsustainable pace for a long time. And what she's trying to do is help them to find calm and peace in their lives. To thrive instead of just barely surviving, like many of us are. In a recent quote, she says, Most of us are more aware of how much battery life is in our phone than we are at the percentage of power in our soul. You get that? We're more cognizant of where our phone is and how much power is left in our phone than how much power we have left. And we keep running like that. But in the passage that we read today, Isaiah 40, 31, it says, but those who put their hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Now, in his book, HQ, which is the book that we are going to base this series on, and by the way, I am so excited that for the next seven weeks, we are going to look at the power of hope and how that impacts our lives personally. Hope. We all need hope. And what Ray Johnston discovered is that thriving people thrive for one reason. One reason only, and that is they have hope. Have you ever been in a place where you felt hopeless? You cannot thrive if you feel hopeless. And unlike IQ, which used to be kind of the benchmark for a person's success, what we're finding is that HQ, our hope quotient, can be developed 
And it's actually more important to a person's success and well-being than even IQ. We need to maintain our sense of hope. When we lose hope, we lose our ability to dream for the future. We just can't dream anymore. And despair starts to fill our lives. We, we can't uh, get a sense of joy. Fear replaces faith. And anxiety replaces prayer. It's a terrible place to live. And yet many of us find ourselves drifting into that. And yet Jesus gave his life so that we wouldn't have to live like that. So that we could be free. So that we could be filled with a sense of hope and vitality. If we have hope, there's almost nothing that we can't do. You see, hope liberates, motivates initiates and activates. And according to Ray Johnson, there are five primary things that we need to keep a look out for. Things that drain our batteries, that absolutely pull hope from our lives and leave us feeling just depleted. And so I want to start by looking at five things, five primary things that deplete our sense of hope. And then I want to look at five things that will replenish our hope. Okay? So let's start with the first five. First, unhealthy people. Unhealthy people. We all have people like this in our lives, right? Unhealthy people. And we know who they are because after we've spent time with them, we need time to recover. We need to get away and we need to recover you know what I'm talking about? You, do you know a person like that? Are you sitting next to a person like that right now? If you are, don't look at that person. Don't look. Just quietly pray that God would heal them and heal your relationship. You see, we are called to invest in people that are difficult. We're called to invest and encourage people who are challenging, people who are unhealthy. But the thing is, we cannot surround ourselves with unhealthy people all the time. Or our batteries are just going to get drained completely and we will have nothing left to give. Right? So we need to help those people. We need to encourage those people. But our primary relationships need to be people who encourage us. People who build us up. People who are for us. People who are life-giving. And after we, after we spend time with people who do those sorts of things for us, what we'll start to discover is we start to feel hope. We start to feel more vitality. We feel encouraged. We feel equipped. We feel empowered. And that's where we need to be if we're going to accomplish the things that God is calling us to. Number two, unkind critics. Unkind critics. You see, we all need feedback, right? No matter what you do, no matter what your career is, no matter what you're investing in, um, you're going to have certain aptitudes where you do things really, really well. And people are going to look at you and they're going to say, wow, you, you are a rock star when it comes to this or that. But because we're human, there will be other areas in our lives where we have deficiencies, where we fall short, where we struggle. And... If we surround ourselves with unkind critics, those people will eat us alive. They will tear us down. 
But if we surround ourselves with people who are willing to build us up, then we can learn from those people and we will actually thrive, okay? Do you know of anyone that has the gift of criticism? We probably all know a few people like that. You know, they, you see them coming and your heart starts to palpitate because there's been a, there's been a pattern, right? They come up to you and they say, hey, wanted to talk to you about that, you know, that thing that you're doing. And you're just like, oh, great. You know, here it comes, right? And they just tear you a new one <laughs> and leave you feeling discouraged and demoralized. We can't surround ourselves with people like that. Ray Johnston says this. He says, listening to your critics is like bobbing for apples in a sea of acid. Does that sound fun? I don't think so. It will drain your passion, and we need to seek feedback from people who love us, people who are for us, people who see our destiny, and they believe in us. They believe in us. And those folks are out there. We just have to surround ourselves with them. Next, number three, an unbalanced schedule. And I alluded to this earlier in my own story. I told you about the emotional breakdown that I was struggling with, running on empty for far too long, and how I should have known that I couldn't get by on three hours of sleep. God never calls us to run like that. A, a wise person once told me, you know, I've looked all through the Bible, and I see Jesus walking from place to place, but I never see him running. He just doesn't run. He doesn't have to. He always has time. He always has margin in his life for the things that God is wanting to do, those divine appointments that I keep talking about. You see, if we're burning the candle at both ends, we're not as bright as we think. We're just not. You see, there's this law, and we've probably all heard this, the law of diminishing returns. You heard that law? What it says is this. It says, in all productive processes, adding more of one factor of production while holding all others constant will at some point yield lower incremental per unit returns. That's the law. And it's consistent. It's a law, which means it's predictable. So what does it mean to you and me? Well, simply put, sprinting at the top of our capacity or working longer and harder may produce short-term gains, right? We've all kind of jumped in and said, hey, man, I've got to get this stuff done, and you really just kill yourself for a season. You can produce short-term gains, but if you stay at that pace over time, it will actually have a negative impact on returns, and you will produce far less. And it's the perfect recipe for burnout, and I know some of you here are feeling a little burned out. And we should address that. Now, on the contrary, if we choose a healthy pace, we'll go further and we'll go longer with fewer injuries. All you have to do is talk with a marathon runner and ask them about this. And they will tell you what it takes to run a marathon. And life is much more like a marathon than a sprint. And the things that God is calling us to are more like a marathon than a sprint. You see, God's call to Sabbath 
isn't just a good idea. We need periods of rest. That's the way God created us if we want to have sustained health and vitality. And do you know that it's in God's top ten? Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? Did you know that Sabbath-keeping comes before don't steal and don't kill? You see, this is a priority for God because he knows we need this if we're going to be effective. Now, the next thing is unnecessary guilt, or maybe just guilt, because I think guilt is always unnecessary. Guilt. We say and do things all the time that are hurtful to ourselves and hurtful to others, but Jesus went to the cross so that we could be forgiven and free from our past. That was part of what Jesus was doing on the cross, creating an opportunity for us to be free so that we could then have hope and enter into the kingdom life. You see, guilt locks us into a prison of regret, and it's just not from God. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts because the Holy Spirit's desire is to move us through convicting us closer to God. But the enemy takes conviction, twists it, turns it into condemnation and guilt so that he can move us further away from God. Do you see how he does that? And we can easily get that confused. We feel a sense of conviction and we turn it to condemnation. And we feel guilty. And we feel isolated and separated from the things of God. Next, underestimating the impact of exposure. This is number five. Underestimating the impact of exposure. What we think about, meaning the things that we dwell upon with our mind, we will become. Did you know that? They say you are what you eat, but more importantly, we are what we think. Our character is influenced by the things that we think about. Our mind will dwell on whatever we most expose it to. It's just a matter of fact. And whatever enters our mind repeatedly will be revealed in our character and in our life. So if your thought life isn't that healthy right now, or if you feel like your character is kind of mm, a little shaky, the first thing to do is to ask yourself, what am I thinking about all the time? What am I exposing myself to? We need to choose to expose ourselves to things that are edifying. Scripture calls us to that. That's why meditating on the scriptures is so vital to our well-being, to our health, to the hope that we need. The Apostle Paul reminds us to set our minds on the things above, not on the earthly things. Now, I would encourage you to be very selective about the media that you consume. Very selective. And we live in a time now where we can be. I mean, we are bombarded by media and other streams, but there are certain things that we can choose to expose ourselves to and things that we can limit our exposure to, right? Now that we have Amazon and Netflix and Hulu, we can choose the programming that we want to watch and we can exclude the things that we don't want to see, right? We can put filters on our computers if we need to. 
okay? We have the ability to choose the content that we take in. And that's so important because almost everything that's out there, or I should say the majority of what's out there in the media, is so human and oftentimes broken because that's what sells, right? Anything that's sensational will sell. And so we need to choose to be very intent on what we take in. And here's a great habit that you could try. Even for the next week, I'd like you to give this a shot. Instead of just before going to bed, looking at your phone and checking emails, or looking at that text feed, or checking Facebook, what I'd like you to do over the next week is read a little bit of scripture. Even if it is a verse or two, just 30 seconds or one minute, so that the last thing that you put your mind on, that you fix your mind on, are the things above. And then go to sleep. And see how that impacts you over the next week. I guarantee that it will change your outlook. You will sleep better, you will feel more hope, and you will feel more alive. You will be in a better position to do the things that God has called you to. Next, I want to focus on five things that will instill hope. Things that will charge our batteries. Things that will give us the vitality that we need to do what God is calling us to. Number one, invest in your own growth. Invest in your own growth. So many of us are so good at investing in others. We invest in our kids. We invest in our spouse. We invest in our business partners. We invest in our friends. But we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking strategically about how we're investing in ourselves. Right? And you might say, well, that, oh, I'm just being self-sacrificial. You know, I, I, no. You really need to focus on your own personal growth. In Mark chapter 1, there's a section in the scriptures where Jesus and his disciples have just gone to Capernaum. And when they get to Capernaum, um, you might remember that Simon's mother-in-law was very sick. She had a fever. She was in bed. And it wasn't looking good. And so Jesus healed her. And this is one of the earlier miracles that Jesus did. And when the town of Capernaum heard about what Jesus had done, it like created this firestorm. I mean, everyone in the town, it says everyone in the town came out with their sick, their demon-possessed, uh, anything that they needed, they brought to Jesus. And it says after sunset this happened. So all night long, Jesus... And the disciples are healing the sick, casting out demons, and doing ministry. So you can bet that by the end of the night or by early morning, Jesus was probably exhausted, right? Exhausted. But I want you to notice what Jesus did in that state of being completely depleted. In Mark 1, 35 through 38, it says, very early in the morning probably before the disciples got up. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place, and he prayed. Now, again, in Luke 5, 16, it says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What is Jesus doing? What is he modeling here? You see, when the disciples woke up, 
I'm sure the crowds were still around. I'm sure there was still a ton of demands upon Jesus. And they couldn't find him. And they were like, where did he go? What, what is he thinking? Where, I mean, this is the height of his ministry. Look at the opportunity that has presented itself to him. I mean, this is it. Where did he go? And when they find him, they say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Where have you been? As if to say, get your priorities in order. I mean, don't you see the needs that are presented before you? Don't you see the opportunities that are before you? Now, if I were Jesus and I were in that situation and all of New York City showed up at Trinity to be healed, I would think, wow, something really powerful is happening here. I'm not going to sleep for the next four weeks. I'm just going to, like, spend all of my energy, all of my time until we see what God does. But that's not what Jesus does. Because he realizes that he only has so much to give. He only has so much power. And so he's modeling and showing the disciples that the true source of power, the true source of hope. And if Jesus needs that, how much more? How much more do we need that? Number two, never underestimate the power of worship. Worship. In Matthew 22, 37 through 38, Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart and with your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. So this is very important for Jesus. This is why we were created. He wants us to worship him, to celebrate him. When we worship, we are drawing close to the God who created the universe, the God who has given us everything, a God who has lavished his blessings and his grace upon us. And so it's only appropriate and natural for us to respond in praise, in worship. And when we do... God blesses us in return. As we worship, we are filled with the presence and the power of his spirit. Our strength is renewed and our anxieties are released and we rekindle our sense of hope. Isn't that amazing how God has worked that out? Some of you have experienced that firsthand. Some of you have drugged yourself here on a Sunday morning and you're thinking, this is the last thing I want to do. I just don't want to be there today. And you walk in here and somebody says, hey, how are you? And you're like, oh, so wonderful. You know, I'm doing great. You know, praise God. Right? <laughs> and then you sit down and you're like, Lord, if you don't show up, I'm never coming back to this place again. And then we start to worship and something happens. The spirit starts to rest upon us. And all those anxieties and those fears and those frustrations start to subside and we start to enter into the presence of God. And our batteries start to get charged because that's the way God is. You see, the relationship is always reciprocal. Anytime we give to God, he gives back more. Isn't that interesting? Number three, unleash the Bible in your life. Unleash the Bible in your life. A recent nationwide survey com completed by Barna, the research institute, determined that only 9% of those claiming to be born-again Christians have a biblical worldview. Only 9%, which seems incredibly low, right? Now, most of us don't realize how deeply our worldview is influenced and affected by the media and other outlets. Anything that we expose ourselves to 
any form of education, anything we read, anything will influence our worldview. Do you know if you have a biblical worldview? Would you like to find out? You can find out by answering the following questions. I'm going to put them up there for you. You can look at these questions and answer these questions. Do absolute moral truths exist? Is absolute truth defined in the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Did God, the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule today? Is he the all-powerful? Is salvation a gift from God that can be earned, that can't be earned? Is Satan real? That's the one we worked on with Annie. Does Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ over to other people? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? Now, here's the thing. If you answered yes to all of those, you have a biblical worldview. Now, here's the other thing. If you answered yes to some of them, you have a worldview that is influenced by the Bible, but it may not be a biblical worldview. So how do we get a biblical worldview? Well, we have to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. We have to learn what the Bible is talking about, what it says, how it speaks into our lives. And when we do, we will develop a biblical worldview. And in addition to that, we will draw closer to the Lord and he will in turn pour himself into us in ways that we would never have imagined. That instills hope. And it enables us to thrive. Number four, build great relationships. Build great relationships. You see, Jesus lived in community and he modeled community. Even when he got away for times of solitude, remember why he was getting away. He was getting away so that he could spend time with the Father. Okay? So Jesus is an advocate of great relationships. He's an advocate of community. And in John 17, 20 through 21, it says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. What he's talking about here is unity, the body coming together in relationship, connecting, investing, pouring into one another. So my question to you is, what do you want most out of life? If you really think about it, if you boil it down, what's the one thing that you really want most out of life? Most of us would say healthy relationships. A relationship with God, a relationship with our spouse, our kids, our friends. We want healthy relationships more than anything else because we know that if we have great relationships, we can enjoy life no matter what's happening around us. We can enjoy life even if our health is failing. We can enjoy life even if the stock market crashes and we lose everything. If we are surrounded by great relationships, we'll be fine. We know it. You see, there's an old African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. It makes sense, doesn't it? You see, we need each other. We need each other for support, for encouragement, for hope. And finally this, pay attention 
to whose voice you're listening to. Pay attention to whose voice you're listening to. There's a lot of voices out there, right? In the book HQ, there's a story about an experienced spelunker. Remember those guys that explore caves and they go deep down into caverns that are really scary and dark? Well, this experienced spelunker decided to invite his friend Danny to come along with him on one of these adventures. And Danny says, oh, great, you know, I've never done that before. That sounds fun. I'd like to join you. And when they entered the cavern, the passageway started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Until pretty soon, Danny found himself on his hands and his knees crawling. And it kept getting tighter and tighter and tighter until pretty soon he was laying on his back. And the only way he could move any further was just pushing with his feet. And then it got even tighter yet to where he he could feel his chest pressing against the top of the cavern. And he was starting to feel stuck. He got to the point where the only way he could move is if he exhaled and pushed. And then he could move a few inches. And he started to panic. He started to panic because he's way down into this cave. And he starts to panic and he starts to freak out. And, and, and his friend says, Danny, this is very important. You need to listen to my voice. I've been through this many, many times before. And if you freak out, you're going to get stuck. And it'll, it's going to be bad. But if you listen to my voice, we will get through this. You just have to listen to my voice. I'm with you. I will not leave you. I'm right here. We've done this before. We can do this. Danny died in the cave. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. (laughs) He didn't. He didn't die in the cave. What ended up happening was Danny did listen. Danny listened to the voice of his friend. He pushed through that narrow passageway and he entered into a new cavern that was so incredibly beautiful, so majestic, that he just couldn't believe his eyes. He never would have gotten there had he not listened to the voice of his friend. And I tell you that story because we need to be cognizant of the voices that we're listening to. And Jesus calls us to listen to his voice, to listen to his voice. He says, if you will just listen to my voice. The doubt and the fears and the discouragement will subside in your life. All those things that are causing you to lose hope, you just have to trust me. You've got to listen to my voice. And if you do, you will keep your batteries charged. You see, everybody that we know, including ourselves, needs hope. We need hope. But we as believers know where hope comes from. We know the source of hope. We know how to listen to that voice. And when we do, we will receive an infilling of the presence and the power of the Spirit, which will in turn give us the hope that we need to spread the good news of the gospel.
to offer hope to a world that is feeling in many ways hopeless. Isn't that great? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for being a God that cares so much to invest in us, to love us, to pour yourself into us, to give us everything that we need, Lord. And when we freak out and we start to feel a sense of despair, fear, anxiety, your word is always the same. Calm down. Listen to my voice. I'm going to give you everything you need to do everything that I've called you to. In the name of Jesus, amen. We have the opportunity now to come to the table. And uh, this is really a celebration of what God has done in our lives. The way that he has poured himself out to us, given us hope beyond measure equipped us and empowered us to do things that we'd never be able to do otherwise. To look back at the areas of our lives where we've failed, where we've fallen short, and to say, you know what? I don't have to worry about any of that because God's taking care of it. Jesus took care of that on the cross, and so I'm free to go out and do the things that God has created me to do. God has an amazing plan for you. He's invested in you for a purpose. And you need to know that you, each one of you, are so unique that when God created you, he thought about a very, very specific thing that he wanted to accomplish. And he's infinitely creative. And so he said, you know what? I, I, what I'm envisioning will require this set of skills. It will require this kind of personality. They're going to have to go through these sorts of things. And I'm going to have to build them up after they go through those things. But once they are built up and restored and they're listening to my voice, oh, my word, they are going to do so, so much to impact the kingdom. And, you know, when God was thinking about all those things, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about you. And to ensure that you'd be able to do it, he sent his only son to die the most heinous form of execution. Willingly. Because he knew that if he would do that, because of his perfect record, his righteousness would be infused upon you and the enemy would never be able to touch you. Isn't that awesome? When Jesus was with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take it and eat. And the disciples took it and they ate. And then he said, and the, this, this cup, this cup of wine, this is actually my blood poured out as a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink. And they drank. And Jesus had those disciples do that because he wanted them to be able to look back when things got challenging. When their batteries 
were completely depleted and they would remember the source, their strength and their refuge. And when we come and we take communion together, we are remembering what Christ has done for us. And we remember that we have everything that we need. So when you're ready, we have two stations in the front and two in the back. And I would encourage you not to come alone, but to come with some people around you and celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Come when you're ready.